0: We appreciate you joining us on this beautiful day. Uh, we, if you're not here we, in person, we are glad you're watching online as we continue looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. And I know that it may seem confusing the way we're doing this because it's kind of a, a topical sermon, but it's a sermon series, but it's also expositional in, in a way. We're, we're looking at a small portion of of one small book over a period of a couple of months. And and I don't want you to miss the importance of this because this is really going to set the course for the future of how we make disciples as individuals, how we view spiritual maturity as a church, because in 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter basically gives us a system. He gives us a systematic, orderly, spiritual growth program it seems he gives us a a systematic orderly disciple making strategy a way to lead people from faith to maturity a way to lead people from from immaturity to maturity and stability in the faith and we we spent the first week of this series as we're taking a break from the gospel of luke we're going to get right back into luke uh in january when when we get beyond 2020, we'll get right back into Luke, but we're taking a break from Luke. So look at these verses in 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter makes three bold claims. He makes three bold claims, three bold promises. The first promise he made that we saw in that very first sermon several weeks ago is that God has provided us with everything that we need for life and for godliness, Along with precious and magnificent promises so that we can be partakers of the divine nature. So that by escaping the corruption that is in this world, we can be partakers of the divine nature. So that's, that's Peter's first bold promise. Number one, that God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. The second bold promise he makes that we saw in that very first sermon, is that because of the great grace with with which God has bestowed upon us, we, as individual believers, must apply all diligence in seeking to add to our faith moral excellence. And we must apply all diligence in our moral excellence to add to that moral excellence, that spiritual fortitude, knowledge and to our knowledge self-control and to our self-control godliness and to our godliness brotherly affection to brotherly affection love and and then he then he makes a third claim that if we go after these qualities diligently if we invest ourselves in these in pursuing these qualities and adding these qualities one upon the other he makes the promise that if these qualities are ours and are increasing we will not be useless we will not be unfruitful We will not be blind. We won't be at risk of falling away. But rather, we will have the kingdom abundantly supplied to us. So Peter basically says, here is how you mature as a believer in Christ. Here's how you mature as a disciple. And if you mature as a disciple in this way, then by default, this is how you make maturing disciples. We've been walking through and focusing on verses 5 through 7 of 2 Peter 1 chapter 1, where Peter lists the qualities that we need to be going after as individual believers, as, as Peter lists the qualities that we're supposed to be leading our disciples to go after. And we've unpacked these qualities one at a time. We've already looked at faith. We've already looked at moral excellence or, or spiritual fortitude, so to speak. We've already looked at knowledge last week. And today we come to the quality of self control in second Peter 1 verses five and six Peter says now for this reason also for this reason because God by his grace has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness because God by his grace has given us precious and magnificent promises so that we can escape the corruption that is in the world and go after the divine nature because of the these things applying all diligence in your faith supply Moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control the word self-control here literally means self-mastery mastering yourself self-restraint When we think about Christians we could even say spirit control not just self-control but spirit capital S spirit control as a matter of fact, Paul in Galatians 5, to 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Against such there is no law. So self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's spirit control. It's a product of the Spirit which reminds us of the logical progression here that Peter's giving us. Don't miss this logical progression. You come to saving biblical faith by God's grace alone. He has given us this faith. He has provided us this faith. He has provided us with everything pertaining to life and godliness. So He gives us this faith and through that God-given faith, we then gain and maintain an increase in moral excellence, in spiritual fortitude, in moral energy, Christian energy. And then you hone in, stay with me, you hone in that moral excellence, that energy, that fortitude, through an increasing and consuming knowledge of Jesus Christ, like we saw last week. So God gives us this faith, which then results in a measure of spiritual fortitude and spiritual energy and Christian excellence and moral excellence, which we want to increase in, but we also need to hone in and direct that fortitude and that energy to to the right thing, so we add to that a knowledge, a knowledge of Christ. And as we gain a knowledge of Christ and we become consumed with who Christ is, then what do we do? We bring ourselves under His control. We bring ourselves under His teaching. We become self-controlled. Ultimately, self-control is simply remaining under the control of the Holy Spirit who will always subject us. Don't miss this. The Holy Spirit will always subject us to Jesus Christ and His teachings. So being self-controlled is simply knowing Christ and submitting ourselves to Him and controlling ourselves, being spirit-controlled under the mastery of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we get a picture of self-control. How can we be self-controlled? What does self-control look like? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So as we think about these two words from 2 Peter, self-control, I want us to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in verses 24 to 27. And we're going to seek to understand self-control based upon these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse number 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse number 24, the apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. Everyone who competes in the games, the games... The games, exercises, self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now the Greek word self-control literally means self-mastery, self-restraint, holding oneself in. But get this, in Peter's day, in Paul's day, this word was not often used in, in spiritual talk and religious talk. This word was most often used in, the, in speaking about athletics. This word was used most often in speaking about athletes. So they borrow a word that is very common among athletics and among athletes to apply to our spiritual walk. Athletes were self-controlled. Athletes were self-restrained. Athletes were self-disciplined. What can we learn, Paul, from these athletes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27 when it comes to self-control? Three quick things. Number one, run to win. Run to win. Look at what Paul says. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. The Greeks had two great athletic festivals. And it was not the World Series and the Super Bowl. Those will be our two. Unless you're a soccer fan. then I guess you could say the World Cup. World Series and the Super Bowl, right? But not in this day. In this day, the two, the two equally important sports events of the year would be the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games. Okay, so, so everybody knew about these games. Everybody was enamored with these games. Everybody stopped what they were doing for these games. And get this the Isthmian Games were held in Corinth. So when Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to the church at Corinth, they immediately have in their mind the pride of Corinth, the Isthmian Games. Contestants in the Isthmian Games had to go through rigorous training for 10 months prior to the race they had to go through rigorous training for 10 months and the last month they had to go to Corinth and they had to be supervised in their daily workouts in the gym and on the athletic fields and nobody would train so hard and for so long without intending to win these games right I mean they did just get to line up and this is a 5k and we're just happy to finish you know we get a medal and put a little sticker on the back of our car goes we finished yay everybody gets a trophy no and this day you lined up and there was one person who would win the race and everybody was running hard for the prize everyone purposed to win desired to win and wanted to win yet out of the large number of runners who had spent years and years and years training out of the large number of runners who had come to corinth for 10 for, for 10 months to train only one only one would win and notice what Paul says do you not know that those who run in a race all run but only one receives the prize and then he looks at the church at Corinth and he says run you church at Corinth run in such a way that you may win now, they didn't get confused and think he meant that they should go apply to attempt to run in the Isthmian Games. They took what Paul said and immediately applied it to the spiritual context. Peter says, uh, Paul says, everybody is, is going to Corinth to run in this race. Everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to get the prize, but only one's going to get it. You, church at Corinth, run in such a way that you may win. He doesn't say, limp along he doesn't say jog along or walk along or sit on the sidelines and watch along. He says run. Yeah, you know, I was involved in one 5K and I won. I won first place in this 5K. And this 5K was in a very difficult area. It's like one of the most difficult. They said everybody who had ran in a 5k before said this was the most difficult terrain because it was hilly up and down up and down and i actually received first place in this 5k it's a true story you're looking at me going yeah right i actually have the medal somewhere if my kids haven't lost it already i won first place in this 5k on the most difficult course in the entire area of the state and there were there were many many people running don't fool yourself there were many people that showed up for this 5k I was the only guy under 40 who was walking in the 5K. So I guess technically I got first place and last place, but I'm claiming first place. I mean, you were proud of me there for a moment. Now you're embarrassed, right? Because I'm the only, I was the only guy under 40 walking in the race. Listen. Paul tells us to run. And we walk up to the pearly gates there's no prize for walking there's no prize for limping there's no prize for even jogging we need to run and we need to run to win the author of Hebrews says that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us now, he distinguishes here we have weights and we have sin. There's two different things. Yes, obviously, we need to fight sin and we need to seek to get free of sin and lay aside sin and throw off sin that clings so closely, but not just sin. It's about, it also applies to those things that we say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say this is simple. The Bible doesn't explicitly say this is simple. So it's okay. I'm good with this. I can No, no, no. Not only your sin, but the weights. The weights which slow you down in your spiritual walk. What are those things in your life that are sinful put them aside, they cling closely, they they whisper in our ears, they hang on tight, put them aside, fight that sin, but what are those things in your life that weigh you down, slow you down, and you know what they are, they come to mind, those things that interfere with you running the Christian race to the best of your ability, what are those things that weigh you down and slow you down, part of self-control is being willing to fight sin to the death, and also being willing to set aside, quote unquote, good things, not sin sinful things because you not only want to finish the race, you want to run the race and you want to win the race. So as we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, not most of the weights, but every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run, run, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to the finish line who is Christ. Are we running in this way? If not, can we really say we are running to win? If we're not willing to fight sin, if we're not willing to give up the things that weigh us down and slow us down, and if we're not willing to keep our eyes on Jesus, can we say that we're running to win? Second thing we see In 1 Corinthians 9, it's not only do we need to run to win, but we need to reach for the real reward. With our life, we need to be reaching for the real reward. In verse 25, Paul goes on and says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Why do they exercise self-control in all things, Paul? He said, I'm glad you asked. They do it. To receive a perishable wreath. A perishable wreath. But we, we, church, an imperishable. To Put that in simple terms for you kids. The people who are running in these Isthmian games are running for a prize that is going to rot and decay and burn up and be lost. But we as Christians, we as the church are running in this race for a prize that will last for all eternity. These athletes exercise serious self-control. If they expected to excel, he he would voluntarily and often severely restrict his liberty. We hear a lot about liberty today. It's my Christian liberty. Well, if we're going to run to win, sometimes we have to be willing to lay our liberty on the line. The athlete's sleep, the athlete's diet, his exercise, they're not determined by his feelings. They're determined by the requirements of his training. They lay down everything for the sake of a perishable wreath, a corruptible reward at the end of the race. Now think about this. The Olympic athlete who has been training day in and day out since childhood, To run in a single race or to play in a few games. Been training their whole life. They've sacrificed food. When their friends were going to get a Big Mac supersized. Or a ribeye with baked potatoes, sour cream, butter and a dessert. They're sacrificing food. While their friends are out late at night, on the town, having a good time, he's in the gym, sacrificing sleep for the Olympic Games. They've sacrificed their bodies. They've sacrificed vacations. They've sacrificed extracurricular activities. For this moment, this moment, and now the day comes and they get on the starting line and, the, and the, fire, the, the starting firing shot is made and the race begins. And they come off of the starting line, a little behind, they start a hair late, they practice this day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out for years. They start just a, just a split millisecond behind But all of the sacrifices that they've made begin to play in their mind. And they begin to run. Or they begin to play with everything they have in their bodies. Everything they have in their mind. And they run. And they win. And they win. And they're placed on that middle platform of the Olympic Games. And the gold medal, which is not really gold, it's not all gold, but the gold medal is placed around their neck. The American flag flies in the background, the national anthem plays, the crowd goes wild. What a tragedy! What a tragedy. Some of you are going, tragedy? How dare you call such a victory a tragedy? Is it not sad that a human being who has one life to live would make such a sacrifice for such a superficial goal that moth and rust corrupt and that thieves can break in? that isn't even real gold that everyone will soon forget as soon as the next tweet is sent out by some other superstar. And we, we sitting here in this park, make so little effort to win the race that does count. The race that has an imperishable, eternal reward at the end. And I'm going to tell you one of the most condemning things about the 21st century Western church is that we are the same way with our kids when it comes to baseball or basketball or football or softball or soccer or fill in the blanks, we will practice, we will run, we will train, we will diet, we will go to camp after camp after camp for what? So that they can be rich and they can be famous, so that they can get the big break and be somebody in this life, in this world. I long, I long for the day when Isaiah 32, 5 becomes true for the church. Isaiah 32, 5 says, No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. In the New Living Translation it says, In that day ungodly fools will not be heroes. Scoundrels will not be respected. We have taught an entire generation or two or three of children and youth, that the scoundrels that they see on television are the heroes, that the fools that we see on television playing in arenas, making millions of dollars, are heroes, and that missionaries, they're they're this special class of people over here that you send off and you forget about. Would to God, would to God, that we would be parents and grandparents that would point out the fact that men and women and young people who have left homes, houses, lands, families, farms for the kingdom of God, who are forgotten, are the heroes. And these guys who are making millions on television are the scoundrels most of the time. I love Bodie Balcom's illustration when he talks about families who say they... They want their kids to play sports because it teaches them respect and integrity. It's like, have you you seen and heard the news reports about the NFL players and the NBA players? Is that integrity? Is that honor? Is that what we're going for here? The best of the best. This is the cream of the crop. This is what we get. What to God? What to God? That we would see the value of the imperishable reward at the end of this spiritual race and get our eyes off of this nonsense that's going to burn up one day. I know I'm in trouble. I wait on the emails, the Facebook messages. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to invest your life in an imperishable wreath that will not fade away. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is There. Your heart will be also. Where, my friend, is your treasure? Where, my friend, is your heart? Is it in this life? Is it in the games we play in this life? Or is it in eternity and the kingdom of God? What do we sacrifice? How do we train? How disciplined are we? How do we compare to the athlete? Paul was disciplined. Paul was self control Which leads us to the third point. Rigorous discipline. Rigorous discipline, verse 26 Paul said, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Paul said, I'm not running through this life aimlessly. I'm not just boxing shadows. I'm always training, always fighting the real fight, the good fight. Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. To make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. And straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was running to win. Verse 27. He says, I discipline my body I discipline my body. That word discipline here literally means to hit under the eye. He figuratively would give his body a black eye. Just knock it out if necessary. Which sounds severe until you realize Paul also said, I die daily. He not only disciplined his body, but he goes on, he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. 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 Paul puts his body into subjection, into slavery, to Christ's purposes. As a matter of fact, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, introduces himself as a slave of Christ. Now, your translation may say servant, but the Greek word is not servant. The Greek word is doulos, which is slave. Peter said, I... I'm a slave of Christ. Paul is saying, I enslave my body to the purposes of Christ. This is self-control. We put our bodies, our lives into slavery, into subjection to his purposes for us. If we're going to win this race, we need to discipline our bodies, keep them under control enslave them to the purposes of Jesus Christ. We must discipline our mouths. We must discipline our minds. We must discipline our hands, our stomachs, our desires, and keep them under His control. Our bodies must be His slaves. Our slaves, not the other way around. John MacArthur said this, Most people, including many Christians, are instead slaves to their bodies. Instead of our bodies being slaves to us, we're slaves to our bodies. Their bodies tell their minds what to do. Their bodies decide when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, when to sleep and get up, and so on. An athlete cannot allow that. He follows the training rules. Not his body. He runs when he would rather be resting. He eats a balanced meal when he would rather have a chocolate Sunday. He goes to bed when he would rather stay up. And he gets up early to train when he would rather stay in bed. An athlete leads his body. He does not follow it. It is his slave. Not the other way around. That's what Paul is saying. I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Martin Lloyd-Jones says we are all to practice temperance, discipline, self-control. We're all to mortify these members, this body. Paul said, I discipline my body and make it my slave. And And then maybe the most surprising thing in the whole text, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. A contestant in the Isthmian Games who failed to meet the training requirements was disqualified. They weren't going to let this guy get on the starting line if he could not meet the training requirements. He couldn't even run, much less win. And Paul did not want to spend his life preaching the requirements to others and then be disqualified for not meeting the requirements himself. Do you understand? Do you understand the warning that Paul just issued to us even though he issues it to himself first? If Paul, who ran, trained, and disciplined himself like he did, could be disqualified, what does that say for us? That we should just kick back and presume upon Christ's amazing grace and take His grace for granted? No, it means that we should be all the more diligent to discipline ourselves, to train ourselves, to run as though we could be disqualified at any moment. Or as Peter said in our primary text for this series, that we need to be applying all diligence... And in our faith, supply moral excellence. And in our moral excellence, knowledge. And in our knowledge, self-control. This is serious. Self-control is serious business. Jerry Rankin, in his book on spiritual warfare, speaks of self-control. And listen to what he says. He says, when we have no discipline in planning and managing our time, It is easy for Satan to divert us and hinder us from doing what we should. We never get around to fulfilling our tasks and responsibilities. Many Christians have had plans for serving the Lord, being a more conscientious witness, even going to the mission field. But they never get around to it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I have always been intrigued that Paul, of all people, could be concerned about being disqualified and no longer useful to God. He who had planted churches and been used so effectively in evangelism But this should be a helpful clue to us. Paul realized that he must stay focused on God's calling and purpose. That focused commitment is much more than time management. But he understood that unless he disciplined his body, even he could be distracted by secondary and trivial things and no longer useful to God. Listen, friend, if the Apostle Paul can be distracted... Runs the risk of being distracted. What does that say about us in our day? With constant screens. Constant competitors for our loyalty. Constant competitors for our attention. Constant pressures. Constant stressors. If Paul could be distracted. And run the risk of being useless to God. What does that say for us? Oh it says we need to add to our faith. Moral excellence into our moral excellence knowledge into our knowledge self-control into our self-control perseverance into our perseverance godliness into our godliness brotherly affection into our brotherly affection love because if these qualities are ours and they are increasing we will not be useless we will not be unfruitful we won't be nearsighted we will never fall away but entrance into the eternal kingdom will be prepared and awaiting us run to win. Reach for the real lasting rewards. And rigorously discipline yourself. Paul did. And how did he end? Second Timothy 4, 7 and 8. He said, I. This is his last, his, one of his very last letters right before he dies. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future... There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What about you? What about you? Is your Christianity more than words? Is your Christianity more than just a belief system? Is your Christianity a government for your life? A governing of who you are by Jesus Christ himself through the working of the Holy Spirit? Is your... Christianity, a race that you're running, a life that you're living, an investment that you're making, a pursuit that you're on. Or is it just some words you said before you took your seat on the sidelines and waited for the end of the race? Christian life is more than words. The Christian life is more than a belief system. The Christian life is you, it's me, repenting of our sin daily, throwing ourselves totally upon the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ and being renewed and transformed and moved to be about what Christ is about. Is that your Christianity? If not, I invite you to turn from your sin this morning. Turn from your futile endeavors this morning. and Turn to Christ. Get in the race. Run to win. Reach for the real rewards. Rigorously discipline yourself to win. Not just to finish, but to win. For the glory of God. And for the fame of the name of God. Of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your gospel. And that your mercy is more than all of our wasted days. Thank you, God, that your mercy is more than our wasted days and years. And we can have a fresh start even now today. Help us. To add to our knowledge of you. Self-control. Subjection to you. Self-restraint. Spirit control. Help us to run this race with discipline. With boldness. With courage. With passion. Help us not only finish it. But help us to win it. And we'll give you praise and thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you're dismissed, there will be some pastors around the fountain. If you need prayer, counsel, guidance, direction, you come. They'll be glad to pray for you. As you're dismissed, there'll be some guys with some buckets available at the exits that can take your offering. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for joining us for worship. Thank you for being here in the dreary weather. Pray that God has blessed encouraged you, has challenged you, and then we'll leave here differently than we came in. Thank you for being here this morning. You are dismissed.